You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey everybody. Welcome back. Oh, yeah. Uh, very excited to dive right into this one today because yeah. I'm assuming if you're here that you heard part one of our Oppenheimer story. Be weird if you didn't. If you just chose to start here. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. Maybe you had a, a little at sea. Right. Maybe you had an episode here. randomizer that picked this one for you. Well, go back and listen to part one first. Otherwise, yeah. you'll be very lost. You probably like it better yeah. that way. The flow. <laughs> The flow is better. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to kind of dive into the women in Oppenheimer's life because we saw the movie and it's great. Love it. Fantastic film. Definitely go see it. But as anyone will point out to you, but not just us, but Uh anyone will point out to you, Christopher Nolan, not that great at writing women characters. (laughs) Yeah. And I can see that he made a concerted effort to include some women in this film. (laughs) And I appreciate that. Hats off to you, sir. (laughs) But they're still a little sketchy. So kind of wanted to fill in a little more of their personalities and the role they really played in his life besides just Gene was a communist and that made trouble for him. Katie was a drunk and that made trouble for him. Like, you know, that's not enough for me. I want to know more. (laughs) It's a three hour movie as it is. I know. And there's only so much. Uh, But but it is. I think we have discussed. It's a common problem that sure, this movie doesn't have time and shouldn't have to focus on the side characters. I mean, you know, like Josh Hartnett's character doesn't get much more time either. Right. But the problem is there aren't any movies out there telling Kitty's story and Gene's story. So, And sadly, it wouldn't be that interesting of a movie, probably, because of the kind of limited lives that women were forced to. And that's the thing that I get frustrated because I'm like, you wouldn't want to necessarily watch a movie about the women of Los Alamos sitting around (laughs) waiting to not hear from their husbands about what? what they're up to. I'd watch Greta Gerwig do it. I would watch Greta Gerwig <laughs> find a way. She would find a way. <laughs> she would find a way. 
But all that to say is, you know, I mean, it's not women's choice that they have the boring part of history. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Like these ladies were trying to make the, make their own way and do cool things. Mm-hmm. And they got sidetracked by the way the world was. And that's very frustrating. And it makes me be like, yeah, I hear you. You don't want to hear a movie about it. But that's part of my problem yeah. <laughs> is that you don't want a movie of their lives because of. Well, anyway. And again, I think once we often dig into that history and you unearth as much as you can, you find out there was interesting stuff going on. Very true. And um, and you know, either it wasn't well recorded mm-hmm. or it just wasn't well thought of for a long time. But right. or given I, the you know what I do want? It's do. I want Greta Gerwig to do a movie about the women of Oppenheimer and then I want Christopher Nolan to do a Ken spinoff. <gasps> and I want to see those. Imagine. Just imagine <laughs> the Ken spinoff. Same weekend release date again for both of them. The time. The time. Talk about saving Hollywood. Listen. But <laughs> what Ken. Is it Ken Mento? <laughs> McKento? McKento. <laughs> he goes backwards. <laughs> Ken's time distortion McKento. experience. <laughs> and he's McKento. got all these tattoos all over him. I would actually buy them a Mento Ken. <laughs> Like 100%. Oh, yeah, he's got all <laughs> little tattoos all over him. Say hi uh, to Barbie. Say hi to Barbie. <laughs> he's got it written across his chest upside down. Hi, so he Barbie. Can see it when he <laughs> so you can look at it. All right. All right. Uh, well, we are going to talk about those movies. Yes. We um, but first, in the first part of this episode, we're going to finish up the story of uh, of Robert Oppenheimer and Kitty, his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we get a little back into Jean again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, our friend um, Ruth Tolman. So lots left to tell. Very exciting stuff. And again, if you haven't seen the movie, this, I think, is a little more spoilery than the stuff we mentioned in part one. But yeah. uh, it was more fun to watch it. Not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, seeing the movie. Either way, uh, I say we just dive in and get started. Let's do it. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So apparently in her drunkenness, Kitty would get a little graphic about her sex life. And she made comments about how she had to teach Oppenheimer about foreplay Uh and that sex could be fun. He previously was not aware. He was like, I thought it was for science. It's probably very mechanical. (laughs) (laughs) Science joke. (laughs) Maybe in his approach. And she was like, hey, we could have a good time with this. Uh Uh-huh. You put the one in the zero. That's sex. (laughs) So that works too uh, well, honestly. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> so Klaus and Straczynski take this information to show that maybe Robert's relationship with Gene Tatlock wasn't really as sexually charged as we've heard it or seen it portrayed in the movie. Because he's just, again, he's not this like passionate sexual guy necessarily until Kitty got her claws in him. <laughs> right. Well, and in, in the film, when you see Gene, they're either having sex or right. they just had sex. Right. So it's just very like if you were just to watch the film and not look at any any research, you might think, oh, Robert and Gene were like passionate, sexy yeah, sex times. Right. And he and Kitty were like just a good marriage. Like he, she was right. just the right wife for him or something. Right. Right. But that's not necessarily the case. So mm-hmm. anyway. So and and here's a little bit about this. Just something that I loved in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Kitty's detractors, even all the people who talk shit about Kitty could not deny that when she was called in as a witness in her husband's security clearance hearing, 
she was his greatest defender. She was total superhero, badass, Mary Poppins coming in there. That's right. Shutting it down. Mm -hmm. The secretary, Verna Hobson, said, quote, so many times I've seen her pull herself together when you didn't believe she possibly could. That's right. So despite her being drunk or on pills or whatever, depressed, whatever was going on with her, when she needed to, mm -hmm. she stood up and she would kick ass. That's right. Pro probably a lot of people underestimated her for that. 100% Oh, she's did. just a drunk. She can't do nothing. And then she's like, uh, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> First of all, let me tell you this. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. She talked circles around the investigators. If you saw the movie, you mm -hmm. saw this scene. And Kitty impressed all of Robert's friends with her performance. Right. Like even people who were like, she's the worst possible wife for him. Uh, exactly. I hate her. She sucks. Were they, like, she was a tower of strength yeah. during this time. Yeah. She was a better witness than Robert. Right. Like they, <laughs> they were like, she <laughs> was the one. And, and years later... When Oppenheimer was given his medal and the government was like, oh, sorry, buddy, no hard feelings, right? <laughs> right? Like, I know we sued you and, and mm -hmm. investigated for treason and all this stuff. Ruined but your reputation. Oh, water under the bridge for us. <laughs> um, even then, she held a damn grudge That's until right. the end. She wasn't taking that bullshit apology, none of that. Which makes me think of earlier when the, the, the neighbor was like, she's fiercely loyal. She is like oh, yeah. a little lion. Yep. And I'm like, that's yep. exactly what that's I'm what seeing. Like, once she decides you're on her team, she will fight yeah. for you yeah. for until tooth and nail. Now, after Oppenheimer's security clearance was revoked, their daughter, Tony, was diagnosed with polio. So they moved to the U.S. Virgin Island of St. John while she recovered. Robert and Kitty ended up discovering a shared love of sailing. So they built a beach house there and they sailed together every summer. So they were like, we used to ride uh -huh. horses. Horses now we're riding desert, boats. Now we're on boats. Yeah, they're like, whatever. I just want to be on a particular, uh, a very specialized landscape. <laughs> and whatever thing is best suited to travel that landscape. That, yes, that's I'm, what I'm I want. I'm into it. I'm in it. <laughs> then, they, you know, then they go to Alaska and they're all in snowmobiles all the time. Snowshoes all right? day. They go to Florida and they just can't, they can't get over their shared love of fan boats. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, they're in bathing suits at the grocery store. I don't know where you go with that. No, Fan no, they're they're in sense. Australia. They're hopping around in kangaroo pouches. <gasps> Amazing! I would do that. <laughs> just like if I, I didn't love... think a kangaroo would immediately <laughs> kick my face in. I love a specialized form of transportation uh -huh. in a in a particular and singular landscape. That's their thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was their new thing. They had some lovely summers together. Sure. But on January 6th, 1967, Robert Oppenheimer was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. Mm. And he died a little more than a month later on February 18th. Yeah. So it did not take long. From smoking, I'll add. Yeah. Uh, he was a heavy smoker. Heavy, heavy smoker. This was, I believe, throat cancer, right? I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And per his wishes, Kitty had him cremated and she dropped his urn off the coast of St. John within sight of their beach house. Mm. In May of that year, their close friend, Robert Serber, who we've mentioned several times, his wife died by suicide, very tragically. Yeah. A few months after that, Robert Serber and Kitty Oppenheimer were living together. So she found her another man, I guess. Yeah. And Kitty got him into sailing as well. In 1972, they purchased a boat and they planned to sail through the Panama Canal to Japan. Oh, wow. Uh, which sounds amazing. Yeah. But Kitty had an embolism, and she died on October 27th, 1972. Mm. 
Decadent Review points out in Atomic Love Story, mm-hmm. they kind of wrap it up by saying, oh, she found another man close to hand and married him. And and Decadent Review is kind of like, that's a little bit of a judgment that's being called oh, about her. Yeah, Nobody says, after Kitty dies, Robert Serber takes up with a student, uh, oh. uh, like a, a young woman, like much yeah. younger than him. And Decadent Review points out, nobody says, oh, Robert Serber found the closest woman to hand. Like yeah. nobody has the same... Yeah. Uh, disparagement of him right. meeting a companion as right. they do for her. So just just to keep in mind that everything we know about Kitty was said in a time when a woman who was very opinionated and outspoken mm-hmm. was not a, a maybe a well-respected woman. Yeah. People didn't like women like that. Right. So everything right. we read about her now, we read it differently, I it, think. And so it's harder to kind of jive all these right. ideas of her together, I think. I, everyone was so conditioned to think that was like abnormal behavior. Like, right. oh, oh, she's she's telling people she doesn't like that when you do it. That's uh-huh. ugh, what's wrong with her? Right. Not That's a not dignity obedient, lady. Yeah, not quiet. Yeah. She's not a die away miss. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so And that also may have contributed to her being difficult to like. Or Easily. being a, a brusque and and mean person, mm-hmm. you know that that's that sort of builds on itself. It's a little self fulfilling mm-hmm. um, when you say, "Oh, she's because she's opinionated. She's so nasty." Right. And then she's like, "Well, then yeah, I am nasty because everyone thinks I'm so opinionated and they're cruel to me." So uh-huh. yeah, I I think it's it's a vicious spiral to get stuck in. It is. So it just. You decide. You don't have to like Kitty or anything like right. that. I'm not sure I would have been friends with her, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it is something that's interesting to think about just from hindsight, how yeah. how we read people in their time versus yeah. now, you know, kind of stuff like that. But Robert and Kitty did have two children, and I was kind of curious about the kids. Yeah. According to NuclearMuseum.com, Tony Oppenheimer um, never really got along with her mother. She had two unsuccessful marriages, and she was deeply depressed by her father's passing. Mm. She was also denied a security clearance to become a translator for the UN. And that kind of brought up a lot of trauma from her dad's security clearance hearing in 54. So she was really depressed and uh, lots of things going wrong for her when she died by suicide at the beach house in St. John in 1977. Oh, man. Now, their son, Peter Oppenheimer... Did not do well in school. He did really terribly, even though he was very smart. Mm -hmm. But he had a lot of anxiety, and he also got teased a lot about his dad, especially after the security hearing. Um, Peter once wrote on the chalkboard in class that, quote, certain people in the U.S. government should go to hell. (sighs) He's not wrong. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Still true today. Yeah. Apparently, Robert Oppenheimer was told by a family friend that he should get some psychological help for his son for his anxiety when he was a kid. But Robert was offended at this idea because the friend, Pat Schur, said that Oppenheimer, quote, could not have a son who needed help. I I think that's one of those masculine pride issues. Like, No son of mine needs psychological help. He's fine. He's a healthy boy. What I find so fascinating about this is Uh that Robert Oppenheimer was really interested in psychology. Um, Gene Tatlock worked with kids in psychiatry. Ruth Tolman was a psychiatrist, a psychologist. He had a lot of respect for that field. But at this time period, of course, if you had to see a therapist, it meant you were a crazy person. Like you were beyond... Right. You were beyond crazy if you needed a therapist. So it's just like a really weird... uh, I don't know, weight to put on 
therapy and at that time. He, as an intellectual, probably very much thought like, oh, that's for lesser mortals. Maybe, yeah. You know, if, if you, yeah, I mean, and not not just like you must be super crazy if you need a therapist, but well, we're smart. We have control of our brains. Right. Because we're so well-educated and well-read. Mm -hmm. Like we can reason our way out of, which I, I know a lot of us still think, I think of myself today. Why can't I just think my way out of this yeah. psychology problem, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you can't, that's the whole idea is that it's not something you can, you can't outsmart yourself. Mm. Um, but I, I know I'm sure that Robert Oppenheimer was very much like a mind over matter person. True. And if, look, if you're my son, if you're a little Robert Oppenheimer and you're having trouble with your anxiety, here's the formula to get rid of it. Right. Well, and I wonder too, Again, time period wise, mm -hmm. they're still very Freudian in that all your problems are oh, because of your childhood and your parents. Yeah, so sure. I wonder if how much of that was like, I'm not going to send my son to learn about why I was a shitty dad. Yeah, right. I already know I'm a shitty right. dad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need some. I don't need to pay you $30,000 to tell me that. <laughs> I don't need some doctor to tell me I wasn't involved <laughs> enough in my kid's life. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I probably a number of reasons why that offended him. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that he was definitely like, uh-uh. Yeah. Peter himself once said, quote, my father's tragedy was not that he lost his clearance, but my mother's slow descent into alcoholism cut that word slow. Mm. Now, this lends a lot of credence to the drunken. Yes. Now, and I was going to say, Robert Serber throughout this book, American Prometheus, you know, he said, Jean Tatlock, Robert Oppenheimer loved her the most. Yep. But, of course, at the time, he had already been with his wife, Kitty. Kitty, yeah. So did it not make him feel better to say he loved Jean more than Kitty, so it's okay that I'm with Kitty? Oh, I, I see. I wonder. I see. I wonder. I don't know. Speculation station. And then I also wonder if he said, oh, she wasn't that drunk. She just took pills. Like, everybody's so... Yeah. But he was with her, you know? He yeah. had feelings for her, so he might have been trying to you know, do a little bit of repair on her image or something yeah. uh, out of love, out of affection mm -hmm. of Kitty. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he might not be a reliable narrator for who or, she is. Well, and it could also be very similar to his son and, and psychiatry where he's like, she doesn't know she's not an alcoholic. We're right. better than that. Right. You know, we're superior to that mm. sort of base human issue that mm, that's so, lesser yeah. people have. She she drinks a lot, but it's something that we're smart enough to get through. Right. You know, she's fine. She's OK. Yeah. Right. But but anyway, for the fact that Peter said, yeah, my mother had a slow descent into alcoholism. You know what? Cut slow. It was slow. Yeah. And also Tony, apparently, as a kid. Was constantly cleaning up yeah. after her mother. She would clean up her empty glasses and her beer bottle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of caused Tony's rift with her mom was that she started getting really upset about all that yeah. and not liking having to do all that and have a drunk mom or whatever. Right. So because the kids say it, I kind of believe it. Yeah, it does. Um, it does feel I kind of like believe that. that she was maybe a pretty bad alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it comes to Peter, uh, mostly, according to Nuclear Museum, he has, quote, been so positive about his parents that his children are often taken aback by media portrayals of Kitty Oppenheimer as cruel and unrelenting. So even even, you know, her grandkids are like, come on, that lady. She, Dad only says the nicest things about right. her. You know, maybe she, she was a drunk. But yeah. Right. Now, Peter Oppenheimer is now a carpenter and he lives in total seclusion on Paracaliente. 
And so we say, let's nobody bother him. You know, <laughs> yes. he's like 80 something years old. Okay, leave he's, that man alone. Leave that man alone. Hashtag he's, protect Peter. Yes. <laughs> he's had it hard enough. I, um, I really think so. I yeah. And that's why I, I wonder, too, for him, if he's like, all right, I have plenty to say about my parents. Right. But everyone already said every bad and good thing about them. I don't need to add to it. I'm just right. going to say they were great. Fantastic. Now, fuck off. Like, I don't want to talk <laughs> to you or anyone else. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. I, I mean, mean I've got to be so tough. He was the most talked about man in the world for a long time. Yes. Oppenheimer. And right. uh, and what a oof, what a shadow to live under. Right. Right. I mean, no matter what. And so. And it makes me sad to think that Peter and Tony, and I don't know if they were close or not, but it seems like they lived pretty separate lives. Right. Um, And it makes me sad to think that the only other person in the world who could understand what it was to be Robert Oppenheimer's kid. Yeah. They weren't close to. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that would bring you together, but I don't know. And who knows? Again, we don't know that much about them. They might have been well, fine together, but the other thing, and I'll say we, we've we've sort of deliberately, I think, not gotten into this conversation too much on this show. But the other thing that can't not be a huge part of their psychology as they become adults and move into the world is knowing that their father created the atomic bomb, yeah. you know, and shortly there, and was you know in some linear fashion directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, horrific deaths Mm -hmm. and whatever. There's a whole lot more to say about the merits of that, the reasons for that. And of course, Oppenheimer's involvement, why he was involved and what he felt afterwards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So much to say that we don't need to get into today. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I do recommend seeing the movie uh, where there's a little more just like, I don't know, it's sort of, even still leaves that to interpretation, but I, I'm i thinking that can't not be part of their identity as well, his kids. Mm-hmm. Has to be. Yeah, my dad's the guy who made the nuke. Especially <laughs> after all of the photos of what happened in Japan. Yes. And what really that weapon wrought. Yeah. After you see that, how do you not have that connected to your yep. father forever? I yep. mean... Or do you? I don't know. You yeah. know, like, because you know your dad is your dad. It's right. a very specific character in your life. Right. So who he is to other people is kind of separate. You're like, who's that guy? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I've felt yeah. that way about my dad sometimes. I'm like, oh, they know somebody different than I know. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Definitely. And that's just how it is. But, yeah. like, you know, um, it, it must be really hard to reconcile. Just mm-hmm. And I think that that was what was so great about the movie was kind of showing how much everybody wanted him to do this yeah. project. They they wanted this. They yep. asked him for it. They were begging him for it. They were pressuring him for it. <laughs> but then once it happened, nobody really wanted to take responsibility for yeah. those consequences and be attached to that literal outcome. It, it really is. It, I don't know. It's really hard. You could, we. I mean, we could argue for hours and hours about whether <laughs> or not it was right to make it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it, it's a very fascinating topic and uh, the movie will make you feel it. That's, yeah, that's the truth. And speaking of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, I think we've said everything that we can say at this point about Robert Oppenheimer's life and his three, the the main three women that he interacted with romantically right. um, that that really had an impact on him as a person. So uh, I'm very excited that we get to uncover all that. I was so 
happy to do a deep dive into yeah. all their lives. They're very fascinating women. You can see why he was attracted to them. They were right. smart and they had a quick wit about them. Right. And, right. you know, they could hold their own with Robert Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. And I think that says a lot. And for all his problems, he wasn't a, a big piece of shit. No, not an overwhelming piece of shit or anything. <laughs> I mean, there's we're like, talking about the time period. <laughs> I know. Well, that's I mean, there's some <laughs> stories where like he invited like a young female student over to his house with Kitty at some point, And, you know, he's trying to entrance this girl. So he's kind of saying cutting things about his wife. Oh, so there's like some right. some anecdotes like that. It's nothing so insane that you'd be like, what a monster. You know yeah. what I mean? But like, it's just 50s husband shit. You mm-hmm. know, like I'm just kind of. I don't. There was a little bit too with Robert, where I, I, I still admire him in some ways, and I like that he was attracted to women who were very strong and and smart and had mm-hmm. a lot of personality mm-hmm. and character. But he's also kind of one of those guys who's very attracted to that, and then once he's got them, he kind of wants to stamp out those things about them, right? Right. Because right. he's like, you're supposed to do something else now that you're married to me, or now that you're, you know what I mean? Like, I I'm not trying about... to say he's like, don't work or something, right? But. He just had an idea about how it was supposed to be, and he didn't have any problem with the way it worked. We've, but So these ladies are fully oppressed by their lives, and he's not really recognizing that. We've come across that a lot in our history shows sometimes, where it's just, you know, we realize that these people were just as much victims of the culture. Like, you know, he had it embedded in his head as well. It's like, well, well once we're married, you know, men mm-hmm. act a certain way, women act a certain way. You know, and it's that same just perpetual systemic issue mm-hmm. that everyone's sort of born into. And I almost wish that if if I could go back in time and shake Robert Oppenheimer, if I could change one thing Robert uh. Oppenheimer did, <laughs> it'd be to let him understand that he could be married to an intelligent woman who's his equal. Right. You know, right. that'd be the one thing I would change about um, all the, the things in Robert thing. Oppenheimer's life. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Like, I don't want to go stepping on butterflies here. Mm. So. Well, and I think, too, there's such an interesting, like, this Berkeley enclave of, like, kind of rich, very intellectual, sort of superior kind of uh, academics that are all fucking each other's wives and yeah. stuff. Like, they're, you yeah. know, it's something very similar to Belle Epoque or, you know, sure. any of these other periods of time where it's like all these people are together and they kind of aren't. Mm, the marriage vow is sort of, eh, you know, right. <laughs> right. so it's even weirder that it's like you maybe view marriage as like, who's a good partner for me mm-hmm. rather than who I'm in love with and yeah. passionate about or something. I can get that anytime. Yeah. But like who am is a good partner for me? Sure. And I'm not sure you ever really picked a good partner for him, quote mm, unquote. True. Um, and people certainly had their opinions about Kitty being good or bad, you know, right. depending on which part of the story you're in. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> saved his ass sometimes. She saved his ass and sometimes she was kind of, you know, a bit of a distraction. Yeah, a challenge, So, yeah. you know, but again, it's, you can't divorce that from how they felt about living their lives. Yeah. I mean, fully, Jean committed suicide. I don't think it had that much to do with Robert. No. You know, it had yeah. a lot to do with everything else. Right. You know, it was, or she was murdered, obviously, by a shagger. Well, you ask me. But I could tell I could see I could see her being if she was already that depressed, if she was feeling that constrained. Right. Not that unusual. I mean, Kitty's drinking problem probably yeah. had a lot to do with that feeling too. It's just yeah. another way to kill yourself, right? right. Just more right. slowly. I don't know. Well Ruth's the only one who fucking handled her shit. She got out. <laughs> she did all right. Ruth handled it. All right. Well, okay. We talked about this story and there's 
more to talk about because, of course, we double featured, not the same day, but the same weekend, mm-hmm. we saw Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yes. Now, we're going to take a little break mm-hmm. and we're going to come back and just the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about those two movies. Mm-hmm. One of, we'll start with Oppenheimer since we just learned his life and then move on to Barbie. But um, I, we just had such a good time and I think such an interesting time watching both that we've got a lot to say. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. we could talk about those movies forever. Yeah, so let's. Let's talk about those movies forever. Forever. Right after this commercial break. We'll be right back. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next-day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. All right. Welcome back to the show, everybody. You want to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer, the two, the the double feature of the year. The biggest double feature of the year. The, the, of the ever, two movies <laughs> that saved the the box office That's this right. month. There's always this one month, that yeah. saves the box office every once in a while. Yeah, but let's we saw both. We we saw Barbie first, then we saw Oppenheimer again. Mm-hmm. 70 millimeter IMAX, big, huge, beautiful screen. Yep. Um, since we just learned about Oppenheimer, let's start there. Okay. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'll give you my Nolan background because I know a lot of people, fellas especially, who start talking about Christopher Nolan movies um, can get a little into it. Mm-hmm. And um, I love Christopher Nolan movies. I really do. The Prestige right? and Dunkirk Ugh, are Dunkirk among is... two of my favorite of his movies. Gripping. They're so good. I, I'll, t- I'll, I'll say it. You know what? I'll mm. say it. Okay. I love Nolan's Batman trilogy. Uh-huh. And Uh-oh. the dark the dark knight is it's great. It's perfectly great. Oh. I think I think we just got a thousand No, messages. hang on, hang on. <laughs> it's so good. I think when you pull Heath Ledger's performance out of it, 
and just look at it, you know, there's a couple of messy parts is all I'm saying. There's some stuff that doesn't make sense. And I think morally it's a little ambiguous and kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too. Sure. Personally, I think Batman Begins is my favorite of the trilogy. It's mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about Batman. We're here to talk about Oppenheimer. It's very Nolan in terms of its direction. Mm-hmm. It clips along. Mm-hmm. I love the way that his scenes don't end. They just bleed right into each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part because of the music. Mm-hmm. Doesn't cut at the end of a scene. It keeps playing right into the next one. Yep. It's almost montage mm-hmm. This For a historical biopic, this movie moves fast. Yep. And I, that's what I was saying earlier about the IMAX, where I'm like, it was almost too big for me to really dial in on what was being said and the story that was happening. Um, that I'm so glad we saw it there because it was beautiful, but I right. kind of want to watch it on my phone at a certain point, right? Just be like, zero distractions, Damn. blinders on. <laughs> like, let me only just look at this tiny little screen and hear what they're saying. Right, yeah. right. Which he doesn't like you to hear what they're saying all the well. time, <laughs> given the sound mixing we yeah. get sometimes from an Nolan film. <laughs> I will say I was, um, he doesn't do biopics, really. Is this his only biopic? This is his, uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's his only biopic. Uh, it, it's his, as far as I know, second nonfiction after Dunkirk. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's everything true. else has been sort of sci-fi or you know, some sort of pseudo fantasy like The Prestige or something, which yeah. is kind of sci-fi too. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. Well, I did really like that he did this one, particularly because of his little weird shit. He likes to play with timelines. Yeah. That, you know, he always does that in his movies right. in one way or another. Yeah. Either it's going backwards or whatever. <laughs> and in this one, you know, he's kind of, he's showing you the security hearing. He's showing you Louis Strauss's uh, confirmation hearing. Right. And then also, of course, the Atomic Project in right. the 40s. Right. Um, so you're kind of flipping between all of these different timelines and yep. different periods in this man's life. And what works about it for me is that, you know, you kind of starting off at the security hearing and they're all like, well, let's look at this piece of shit that made the atomic bomb. Like how, you know, you're, real, you're this communist lover and they're really mean to him in the security hearing. Yeah. And then the next scene... Or as you say, the next kind of part of the montage, it sort of bleeds directly into the next scene. Somebody going, you're the man to do this and you have to. You're going to save the world. Oh, my God. You have to defeat Nazi Germany. You know, like they're at they're really laying on him for this project. So it's it kind of I I think it really does a good job at putting you in his headspace or his, I guess, Christopher Nolan's idea of what his headspace must have been where he's like, I'm remembering very nearby in my mind was y'all begging me to do this. And now you're really pissed at me for doing it. And I can't, I am too, you know, but, (laughs) but like, I can't, I I don't know how to respond to this. And it's very frustrating and contradictory and very scapegoaty feeling. Yeah. Which of course it's exactly what he was. Um, so I think he does a really good job of kind of putting you in that mind space, that psych, that psychological space. Totally. And I think that's kind of what the movie is mostly all about. Cause again, we're not, I, I don't think the movie is here to answer these big questions. Was it a good idea for the bomb? Yeah. Was, you know, was it the right thing to do in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, the, the argument, of course, the largest argument is by dropping the two A-bombs on Japan, we stopped a land war that would have claimed many millions of lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but look where we are now, which mm-hmm. of course is kind of sort of at the end of the movie too. Uh, what What was the long-term damage? Is that worth it? But instead of trying to answer those questions, the movie's much more like, well, let's just look at this guy and what might it have been like to be him? What might it have been like to 
to be the guy who did that? How do you sit with that? How do you mm-hmm. live with that afterwards? Yeah. And then also at the same time, the like you said, the very people who were begging you to do it have now turned around and said, how dare you, sir? How could you have done that? What a monster you must be. Crazy. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating too the element of security that you're talking about a little earlier with yeah. in terms of Russia was our ally. Yeah. But everybody knew at some point this war is going to end and they're not going to be our ally anymore. Right. Like there's it's not not a question, you right. know. <laughs> right. And so um, all of that kind of hiding and fear from our own allies was a real problem. Oof. Of course, you still had German scientists involved that was, you know, literally, I think he even says in the movie, anti-Semitism is our best bet oh because God. we can go right? get all these great German scientists that are Jewish that yeah. weren't, are not allowed Hitler to work to. for Hitler, yeah. basically. Yeah. That Hitler's like purged these guys. So he's like, let's go get them and make them work for us. Oppenheimer himself is Jewish. I don't think we mentioned that. That's right. He, yeah. he was Jewish. I don't think he was a practicing. No, he no. He's very but, religious, yeah. but he was Jewish. But there was still a lot of feeling that like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if Hitler sucks and you know he sucks and you're very mad right now at your home, still your home country. And there's going to be that feeling and you're going to want to help your home country and not me. Can I trust you? Yeah. So I don't know. You know, there's a lot of that kind of like, again, distrust. I mean, straight up restraint, you know, amongst all relationships. You had to be really careful. And it's kind of a foreign feeling to me because the big war of our time, of course, is the war of Iraq. And, you know, we could not be more distant from that war. There, There is no... The propaganda of the Iraq war was, don't even worry about it, guys. Uh-huh. We got it's it. Ha- we got this over here. You know, support the troops. Uh-huh. Wear- put the yellow ribbon on your car. Buy stuff for the terrorists win. Yeah. And that's, and that's all you need to do. And not this the World War II right? mentality of, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to feel it at home yep. when we go off to war. And it, and you dealing with that is you supporting your country. Right. So different. Or right? even the sense of even, you know, you're in the middle of no, I don't know, you live in a small town in Maryland or something. But right. people are still like loose lips, sink ships. Like you can't yeah. be talking about stuff you hear on the news. Right. Because you don't know who you're talking to and who they're going to tell and what they're going to say. And yep. it was just a lot of this like fear of spies listening and. You know, it was just such a, I, I, I didn't hear, a, I guess because we already had computers and they're like, everybody already knows oh, yeah. everything you say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. have to <laughs> tap your phone or whatever. You're telling me everything through Alexa or whatever. But anyway, it's just so weird to think about. It was such a different paranoid, such a paranoid time. Man. And you get caught up in that shit and it changes your behavior a lot. That was one of the things that was most interesting about it to me. You know, I, I, as the movie's coming closer to coming out, all these little YouTube videos are popping up. It's like, the life of Robert Oppenheimer. Here's why Oppenheimer's interesting. Here's what you need to know. And I literally knew practically nothing about him and wanted to go into the movie with that. Yeah. I was like, you, the movie, I want to be totally surprised by everything that happens here. And I was. Mm-hmm. And I and maybe had a hard time following some parts of it where I just had to double back on the conversations. Right. But, um, but it was so interesting to see that paranoia and how it affected everyone and the eggshells everybody's on all the time and the challenges of not just, you know, A, they've got these time limits, which I also didn't know either. We're, it was like the space race. Mm-hmm. Like Russia's actually further ahead. They've done things we haven't done yet. And we're going to watch that and copy it and try and leapfrog what their work. That, that's exactly what happened with the space race. Russia yep. was in space first. Oh, yeah. And we leapfrogged that to get to the moon. Um, so... Mm-hmm. That was really fascinating to me. But then on top of that, um, 
just the fact that while you're under this immense pressure, you can't talk to anyone, you can't call your friends, you can't even, you have to live in our fake little town we built. Mm-hmm. Uh, j- just a nightmare, I think, to be living in that time. Well, and uh, like, uh, and we see this in the movie, a lot of complaints amongst the scientists who feel that knowledge oh, is global and yep. they shouldn't have to hide yep. their discoveries from their Russian or German or Swiss or whatever Colleagues that they had spent time with exactly. that they know personally. No, yeah. I respect this person. I yeah. learned from them. I use their equations in my shit or whatever. Right. And so they felt very strongly that like you should be, I should be able to to share these things. Yeah. And, and in addition to that, they're not sharing with me. Right. So I'm behind maybe what they know. And that's putting me at a disadvantage of my science. Just yeah. pure science. I'm angry that I'm not, I'm not, able to get the resources that I'm yeah. that are out there and exchange these thoughts with these other brilliant people where I know in these discussions, we're both going to see things or come up with things that we wouldn't have come up with on our own. Yeah, totally. So it's like slowing me down. I feel really frustrated, you know, but it was also a bit of a hint um, when scientific community stopped sharing nuclear information. Mm-hmm. It was a hint to every security department worldwide. That, oh, they're working on a bomb. They, yeah. they stopped sharing. Yeah. Now I know they're working on that shit. Yep. Like it was a clue. So you had to be really careful. <laughs> and have we ever come back from that? I mean, the uh, international I community, I don't know what it was like before. Right. But it still feels like the same thing now. Like, no, you can't trust anybody or share anything with anyone else. I know we're all just people trying to live on this stupid spinning marble together. But that person's slightly different than me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that means they're going to stab me in the back the first chance they get. Is wild, that kind of distrust. And you see that in the movie as well. Yeah. I was also really fascinated by that, that there was people saying, like you said, we, we've got to share information with each other. In fact, a lot of people, of course, thought the whole point of the A-bomb is once they know we've built it, they'll stop. There's right. no more war. That's right. Because who would get involved? Was I, I'm not even going to build one once you have one, mm-hmm. which is obviously a little arrogant to think. And, of course, has time and again proven untrue. There's what Dr. Seuss Butter butter Battle Book, right? There is no weapon big enough to stop everyone from using weapons. Right. Or or decide we don't want one of our own. Yeah. You shouldn't get to press that button that destroys everything. I get to press that button. Yep. You know. It's a pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) I would love to talk about performances in this movie because I think at the center of it all is the cast. And... And, you know what? I'll say it. Also, I'll say this. I was a fan of Gillian Murphy before it was cool. Oh. Look, I'm just saying. Tastemaker Eli in the house. <laughs> 28 Days Later comes out. Right. There's going to be people out there who are like, yeah, he was in stuff before that, you loser. <laughs> um, but 28 Days Later came out, and I was obsessed with that movie. Yeah. I was like, I, I'm not into... <laughs> Zombie movies, even though 28 Days Later is not a zombie movie also. Um, (laughs) Yeah, because they don't die. It's not about about the living dead. Uh, In 28 Days Later, it's just a rage virus. Oh, yeah. So technically, if I push my glasses up on my nose here, it's not a zombie movie. But anyway, (laughs) I was like, this guy is amazing and I want to watch everything that he's in. Yeah. And at the time, I was like, uh, <laughs> have you guys heard of Cillian Murphy? Because he's so cool. And then learned like five years later that it's pronounced Killian. But, <laughs> Cillian um, Murphy. <laughs> Silly old Murphy. <laughs> Silly old Murphy. Here's a little factoid for you all that blew my damn mind, even as a Killian Murphy fan. 
Robert Oppenheimer was tall. Yeah. Tall, slim. I have always thought that Killian Murphy was tall and slim. That man is five foot seven. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he has a very towering Ah. presence. And he's actually shorter than my short ass. That's right. At five nine. So short King Killian Murphy. Short King Killian Murphy. Yeah. Incredible. That's probably the most mind-blowing. That's probably the most explosive piece of information that I got out of Oppenheimer. (laughs) The (laughs) most important thing I learned. Because there's times where they shoot it. We talked about this. There's times where they shoot it and he looks like the tallest guy in the room. And there's times where they shoot it and he looks like everyone is like imposing on him. And he's surrounded by giants. Beautifully done. So good. Because you, it's, again, it's so much. I think really, he was really trying to put us in his his brain, his perspective. It's not meant to be an overarching perspective of nuclear, whatever, whatever. Right. It's literally this guy and what he thought and felt during yeah, this time. Yeah, And these various times in his life. And I thought that that camera work worked beautifully for that because when he felt confident, he was the biggest guy in the room. And when he felt like he was getting piled on, he was the smallest. Yeah. It was beautifully, beautifully uh, shown in that way. And I will say, I thought Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan did something that's very hard to do with a biopic in that they did not... Make him a hero or a villain. Yeah. Um. I, I really, I think that's so hard to do. If Usually with a biopic, you kind of pick a side. Yeah, right. And you're like, I've decided that this person's the protagonist. So anyway, they're the hero and everything they did was right and mm-hmm. fine and whatever. And like, you might have feelings. But anyway, in this movie, they were right to do it. And yeah. it's all great. But in this case, I really think they left it. I, I think they both felt ambivalent about it in a way. And yeah. they were like, this was just a human guy who was in the middle of history and happened to be the finger of destiny yeah. was placed on him. Oh like it, it, it didn't have to be him. Right. It was weird that it was him. Yeah. People were like general groves chose probably the worst guy in the world for it yeah. because he had all these communist ties and he was a lefty and he, you know, like right. he wasn't the most brilliant nuclear scientist. He wasn't there was. good at math. He's terrible at math. He yeah. was bad at lab. Uh, he's a theorist. He was, just, he was a theorist. Yeah. And so a lot of people were like, that's a weird choice. But as you said, he was like, this guy's magnetic. People are going to follow him. Yeah. And that's what I need. Yeah. And in the movie, Oppenheimer says, I think you chose me because of my lefty association. So you can right. control me. Right. And I, I don't think he was wrong about that either. Yeah. I'm sure he saw it as, as leverage. Right. Sometimes. Right. But anyway, I thought they both did that really well in the writing and the performance of kind of being like, this is a complicated individual. He's not always right and he's not always wrong. He's not a villain and he's not a hero. He was a guy. You know, he's just a guy. And and I think that's really hard to do. That's so interesting. Yeah, that you say that. I'm thinking about actors often who play, you know, wicked characters in some way, shape or form. And the, the thing you say is, well, I can't think they're evil. I have to think that. I, th- I have to think like they do that my I'm my behavior is justified and I, I take these actions because I think they're right. So I have to think of myself as the hero or the good guy or something. But this is Killian Murphy is playing a guy who literally is questioning yes. his own morals. Yes. D- am I a villain? I am I be. a horrible person or am I or did I do the right thing? Mm-hmm. I'm literally hearing it from all sides and I don't know myself. Right. So I think that's where that comes from in this movie where it is able to balance that so well is probably both of them not approaching this character as someone who thinks he's doing the right thing, but quite the opposite, a character who has absolutely no idea if he's done the right thing or not. Right. And also beautifully shot was his congratulations, everyone. It worked. And we dropped the bomb and it worked. And he had to give this speech. And I thought that was well, really well done because he had such a, and of course he had his own personal like 
fuck. I didn't yeah. didn't know it was going to kill this many people. I didn't realize, you know, exactly the weight or not or, or the destruction, the yeah. destructive power it would have. Right. I knew it would be big, but uh, more people than I thought, whatever. Yep. Also, he's looking at people who spent years with him building this bomb and they're proud of their achievement yeah. and they should be proud of it. And he is, he is proud of it. And he's like, I just wish we could have dropped it on the Nazis because that's who the fuck I was working against. I didn't really give so, a shit about oof, Japan. Yeah. You know, so anyway, it was just really well done to show him kind of being like jovial and excited and his performance. Like, great job, everybody. Mm-hmm. You did it. Like, ooh, pat yourself on the back. We, you know, it's not just about me. It's about you. Everybody's so, so great, whatever. And in his mind, he is freaking out. Like, he is he is seeing the effects of this bomb and and like not knowing, am I proud of this? Is yeah. this good? I, I don't know anymore. I don't know. I think that it's. Um, I want to get back to the performances, but just you saying that makes me think about the, this element of the movie of of we should. I wish we dropped it on the Nazis. Yeah. Right. Um, I think very deliberately in this movie, the word Japan. Never comes up once until they say. It's the target for the bomb. That's right. And I think that must have been so true of the mentality at the time. Like, wait, Japan, what? I Mm -hmm. thought the whole thing was the Nazis. That's kind of what we've been thinking on. But I think that the scientists themselves, Oppenheimer himself and all all his team, at this point, they're so seduced by their own um, uh, creation, right? That they, that they, you get this to this point where you're like, I just have to see if I did it. I just have to know if we succeeded and if it works. And I just have, I built the toy. Now I have to use it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so even they are in the moment excited about like, well, just drop it somewhere. Right. And so the U.S. has, and, and again, there's a whole lot of history here to unpack in terms of would Japan, a lot of, a lot of strategists say Japan never would have surrendered. I also heard that they sued for peace before I, and this, before this the bomb was ever dropped. Exactly. So, uh, Obviously a big part of the movie too. But but they so badly wanted to use it because yeah. they could. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of Japan not even coming up until they're a target, mm-hmm. uh, I think really speaks to, I, I sort of said this, but the mentality at the time of just, oh, crap, the Nazis are surrendering. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to do this somewhere. We got to show the world. We got to show Russia mm-hmm. was a big part that of it, too. That was thing. What, what we can do. Yep. And they said, the first bomb is to show them we can do it. The second bomb is to show them that we can keep doing it. Yeah. Horrible. Horrible. And I guess they didn't really know the effects that the radiation would have, the extra deaths that happened from the radiation. Or maybe they did. I, well, we had Kitty studying the effects of radiation on the blood. And so I, mean, I know that there were, there was an understanding that radiation was deadly afterwards too. But mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and I mean, th- what they were how many miles away from the test site? At the Trinity? Oppenheimer and the scientists were 20 miles away. 20 miles away. So they knew there was not just the blast to worry about. Right. But fallout. Other shit. Yeah. Right. Yes. Very true. And, yeah. and, and we'll throw out there that there are a lot of uh, indigenous and, and people of native, of, uh, of New Mexico, yeah. who are called downwinders, who yeah. were downwind of the Trinity test and have radiation poisoning from it. Yeah. And, and they still... have not been recompensed by the government in right. any way. So they have still, to this day, 
within their community, birth defects, mm -hmm. um, all kinds of crazy shit from right. the Trinity test itself. Right. So there's not only in Japan was there fallout from mm -hmm. Robert Oppenheimer's and and his team's uh, invention, but also right here in America. Yeah. And people are still trying to get justice for that. Yeah. And and again, uh, the movie does not go into this thing. No. Much like it doesn't go to the women of his life. And there's a, there's a degree to which you, you I I forgive the movie for that because it is a singularly focused story, and I don't want Christopher Nolan to be the one who comes out and says, uh, you know, let me tell you about what happened to the Native Americans out here. You know, like it's not necessarily he's not going to necessarily do a good job at that. Very true. He's telling the Oppenheimer story. I think the issue is that we're going to keep seeing movies like Oppenheimer. Who's going to make one that shows about us the downwinders, about yeah. the downwinders or about these three women? That's right. Um, you know, that that just should also exist in tandem. And then we've got the full picture. Right. Um, I uh, speaking of performances, um, I will say everyone, everyone says and everyone knows Christopher Nolan, quote, doesn't do women. He's not great at writing women. <laughs> He's not. He very rarely great. has them in his movies. If they're no. there, they're very lim they're very limited. It's often like a very important character with very little screen time. They're like their significance to the heroes matters so much. They're the only ones with any sense who know what's going on. Like I'm thinking of Scarlett Johansson in The Prestige, for example. Right. But at the same time, the story is not revolve around them. I think the the criticism is that all his female characters only exist in relation to the men. Yeah, yeah, they, exactly. What they're doing, and in the same in Oppenheimer. Yeah. Jean's whole character is that she was a communist and that was a problem for him. Yeah. You know, Kitty's whole character, she's a drunk and that's a problem for him. Right. You know, Ruth's whole character is that he was fucking her and that was it. Like, you know, yeah. there was, there, however they related to him, that was it. They had no life outside of that. Right, right, right. And again, this is a very focused movie and it makes sense in a way to say, well, how did they, what was their thing with him specifically because yeah. I don't have time to go follow Jean through her regular daily routine right uh, while I'm trying to tell you about the <laughs> nuclear bomb you know yeah. I totally totally get that uh-huh uh it's just I think what's strange in this film is that he's clearly trying to address it a little bit he mm -hmm. got two amazing actresses yeah Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt yeah. to play these women and he he there's some scenes you know he's, he tried yeah <laughs> I'm like you tried but <laughs> But it's still so lacking, and like particularly Florence Pugh is such a and a phenomenal actress, and I felt like she didn't really have that much to do yeah. with Jean. Jean's scenes seem to be the same thing each mm. time. Uh, yeah, she didn't have a lot of levels. Yeah. That's fair. And yeah. sort of the same with Kitty. She's kind of the same every scene. She was drunk and mad in every scene, and so it's just kind of where was the softness? I wanted to see what he fell in love with, right. or what they liked right. about him, or. You know, any anything that made them more of a person instead of this is who he this is just the the part they had to play in his life to make him who he was. Yeah. Instead of this is a full person who affected him. You know, we have we have long known that me and Emily Blunt have a very special thing. I know that I you know. and I know this. I'm pretty sure John Krasinski knows about it, but Emily Blunt and I have a very special thing between us. Not not unlike Oppenheimer and maybe Gene, where it's like, <laughs> this, uh, we're both married, we're both uh -huh. happily with our, but, you know, but we can't not be in each other's lives. So a, a big <laughs> point being, I'm a big Emily Blunt fan. I think she's very talented. Mm -hmm. And I think she was very good in this movie. Yes. But at the same time, I did feel in the moment, and I, I do want to see it again and and re-examine this, but I felt in the moment like her shutting down the interview, her um, 
Rob, what's his name? The, the Jason Clark's character. Yes. The um, security hearing. The security hearing and her like absolutely destroying him was so well delivered. She did such a good job in that scene. Mm-hmm. And yet it felt unearned because like he comes, I, I can't, what does Oppenheimer say is like, or, or is said about her? Like she's always. He says what Verna Hobson says, basically. Right. He's like, I, you don't know our relationship. She's yeah. my wife. We've been through fire together. We've been through fire and together. And she can pull herself together we, when you wouldn't think she could. Or and that, it, but specifically that part, we've been through fire together. Right. I, in the moment, I was like, oh, have you? We haven't right. really seen that. The, there's that one scene where he was sad about Jean's suicide and she walks up to him and says, pull yourself together. Right. And that's even what they flash back to as he's saying, we've been through fire together. And I just felt like the movie lacked kind of like you said where where is the passion in their relationship that led to this moment where she said i'm gonna put my flask down and destroy all you guys for having the audacity to come after my man right who's one of the best people i know like we see a few scenes of her saying we need to fight harder we need mm-hmm. to fight harder but i i i was so taken aback by that sudden turn from her that i i felt like it was kind of out of nowhere as opposed to being suggested suggested and then Yes. And then revealed. I feel like it was she was so scornful and Mm -hmm. almost contemptuous of him in those moments where we need to fight. We need to fight. Yeah. Um, That it was it didn't read as. You know, we're just a different personality from each other and I'm angry on your behalf. It was like, I'm angry at you. Right. right. And a lot of the movie was her being angry at him. She's mad. She has a kid. She's mad. She doesn't know about this. She's mad about even the thing about pull yourself together. Like, I guess that was something he needed from her was mm-hmm. for her to be that kind of person. It's like, hey, I get it. Right. You're sad, but you need to get it together. You're in the middle of something right now. Yeah. But it was, it was presented as look at this shrew. Like, like every time you saw her, she was kind of a shrew. Yeah. And she was just sort of yelling and I don't know, mm. distracting and not a good presence. And I was like, I don't see what makes her such a great partner for him. Right. I don't understand and, and as you say, when she does end up being a badass, you're like, where did that even fucking come from? Yeah. So, it, you know. It was jarring. It was a little uneven in those ways. I mm-hmm. do wish that it, it, maybe even in the scene where they got together, there was a little more anything there. I don't I don't know. And then they just show him like riding horses. And I guess that's supposed to be the good times. Oh, those horse scenes, though. God, They're pretty, gorgeous. but it, they don't give you much <laughs> character development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes. Although, I, as you say, I did love how she performed that uh, security hearing yeah. uh, scene was really beautifully done and I will say too learning that Kitty uh, did hold a grudge for the rest of her life yeah. against every single person who said a damn thing against him mm-hmm. including Edward Teller when he gets his medal he goes to shake his hand and Robert's like sure no hard feelings but Emily oh, yeah. was sitting there fucking glaring Hell at him no. daggers Hell no. and that's clearly very true to life she, was, right. she straight up would have seen Edward and been like why don't you eat my how shit instead? You. Yeah, you just said that to Robert's like, how dare you? What do you mean you shook his hand? Yeah. This is the guy like, just sold you out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was very well done. And uh, I think Emily Blunt said she had a, she deeply felt for this woman who was very sad and lonely. Yeah. yeah. And she drank a lot to address those feelings and, and stuff like that. So where I think, I think, you know, obviously we can say that Nolan, it's not his strongest storytelling element, right? right. His romances and women and how they <laughs> women and anything about them um <laughs> <laughs> anything about them. but and and on uh, on top of that this is 
an incredibly complicated person mm -hmm. who made for an incredibly complicated character. Yeah. So these things that we're not seeing, not getting, you know, might just be wrapped up in her complications. Right. And I, 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 I do agree that there's probably some some things in the movie that could have established something that had a better payoff in mm -hmm. that moment. But um, but yeah, it's real hard to encapsulate somebody like Kitty without her own damn movie, which quite frankly, give me that Emily Blunt spinoff and I'm first I in will line. Watch I'll watch, I'll do the 70 millimeter IMAX thing. I would do that. There the was bigger Emily Blunt, the better, I've <laughs> always said. There is actually a fun story about Kitty on Los Alamos where she fucking was like, why don't you eat shit with your security protocol? Got in the car, <laughs> drove away from Los Alamos and went to a hotel bar for the night. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> so there were times she was oh, just like, awesome. why don't you just <laughs> eat my dirt? Um, wow. So she actually might be kind of a fun movie, actually, if you really, really wanted to try to pull down this character who is vivacious and lively and yeah. sharp tongued. Like a witty person can often be very sharp, as we've learned with like Oscar Wilde, yeah. for example. He was kind of a bitch, like, but he was, <laughs> but that's about his witty. He was a bitchy, witty guy. Yeah. And so when he said something like, oh, that shit was funny, right. <laughs> but it was totally a roaster. She might have been a roaster, you know, in that way, but you don't appreciate a female to roast the same way you appreciate a male to roast. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? As little as you appreciate a male roasting you, <laughs> you know, you definitely, women are supposed to be nice and kind, right? So, yeah. and, and whatever. So, uh, at any rate, fantastic performances, even with very little to work with. Right. I will say, because again, Florence Pugh. I mean, forget it. Amazing. Florence Pugh, she's, she's, she's doing incredible things Very out there. magnetic. Um, I, I want, I've, I've, there's been a, I've had my foot on the brake with Florence Pugh, like ready to tap it, mm -hmm. you know, for, ever since she sort of popped up. But I've been like, oh, she's, you know, the new hot thing. Well, we'll see. I, I'm always skeptical of public opinion because I just think everyone's wrong but me. So um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm getting at here. Point is, she has consistently amazed me mm -hmm. um, and and checked my hesitations uh, numerous times because she's always good. She is. She's always very good. Killer. And as you say, Killian Murphy, amazing. Uh, just did a fantastic job. We, we, I want to rush to our Barbie review. Mm -hmm. So real quick, just let's just we've talked about the movie a lot. Let's just hammer down a couple performances real quick. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we talked about the big three. Right. But let's talk Robert Downey Jr. Oh. coming in and reminding us why he's one of the greats. Um, just he absolutely was crushed it. Fantastic. Yeah. There were so many moments where he just did something so subtle. Oh, my God. Just something so little. And I was like, you just gave me so much. In that little moment. And I admire it so much. Like when he said, oh, you were just a lowly shoe salesman. Uh-huh. And, and Louis Strauss goes, just a shoe salesman. Just a shoe salesman. And he's smiling, but his eyes are fucking furious. Yeah. Like, I do, I, he just does it. It's, so, it's such a little he's moment, so but good. it was so good. He and there was a few of those. The way he pronounces his plosives in that movie, like his P's and B's were diff. I know Robert Downey Jr.'s voice pretty well <laughs> after 12 years of MCU. And mm -hmm. uh, and he was speaking just this with this subtle difference that was just like, you're embodying a different person yeah. right now. And I was so amazed by that. Yes, he was really great. And may I say, where the hell has Josh Hartnett been all this Listen, time? Listen, I was so excited. Oh he looks different. He, he looks, looks different. He looks great yeah. to me, but he looks different yep. than when he was pretty boy, young, yep. younger, yep. or whatever. But he, I thought he did a fantastic oh, job. So too. good. So good. I was just like, I never knew what to think about him. No, exactly. he's all over the place. I was like, 
oh, he's your bestie. He's the he's right there with you. The, Wait a minute. No, this guy's a fascist. Wait a minute. No, he's got your back. It's just all over the place yeah. like in a really good way. Yeah, he was uh, his character was apparently he was really against union organizing. Yeah. So that's what was his big problem. Yeah. But uh, and of course, communist. He was surely ugh, communist yeah. like, kind of guy. But um, but I didn't really get the impression from the movie that he had a, like a long list of grievances and would be spreading rumors about Oppenheimer and stuff. Yeah. That was kind of a surprise to see about Ernest Lawrence and the research. I did kind of get that impression a little bit. Yeah, I, okay. I, I did. Yeah, I felt like he not unlike Strauss was like he was a little more side by side with Oppenheimer so much that he yeah. sort of had to be had had a a positive working relationship with him. Mm-hmm. But it felt like there was something in there that was like, God, but ooh, I just can't wait to punch this guy in the face, though, too. Right on. Like, he was, I think he was a little jealous of Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I think he was resentful mm-hmm. uh, of of his success, despite the fact that he was like, but you're the, you're. I'm meeting with government people about what a problem you are. Right. And they gave you the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Um. So I, I thought there was, I, I picked up elements of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Well, anyway, but Josh yeah. Hartnett, great job. Great job, Josh Hartnett. Kind of, I think at one point you leaned over and you're like, every white man with a SAG card is in this, is movie, in this movie. And that is so true. And the rest of SAG was next door working on, on Barbie. Barbie. <laughs> which brings <laughs> us to the other movie we saw this past weekend. And we will take our last break for this episode. And we'll come back right after this and talk all about Greta Gerwig's incredibly pink movie (laughs) barbie (laughs) the pinkest movie ever yeah uh you know and of course goes without saying we're talking about the movie here's a spoiler alert uh yeah (laughs) right 100 spoilers yeah uh we'll be right back whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hi, Barbies. Welcome back to the show. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. So, Barbie. Opening night, we went Thursday with a bunch of friends because mm-hmm. they at, we thought we weren't going to get in. That's right. Because the whole weekend was sold out, and then they added a showtime. Yay! And we managed to squeeze in Thursday night. All right, and I, I'm going to tell y'all, I'm a fan of Barbie. I sure. loved Barbie. Loved playing with Barbies. Uh-huh. Had a billion Barbies. Loved them. I still have them in my parents' house. They're always asking me to come get them. I'm not going <laughs> to do it. Their house is bigger than mine. <laughs> they have more storage. <laughs> sorry, sorry, and more storage space over there. I'll try one day, but y'all are going to hold on for now. <laughs> but anyway, so I was like already sold on the Barbie movie. Like yeah. I was like, I'm going to the Barbie movie. Uh, so I'm very happy we got to see it opening night myself. Oh, yeah. And it was it's such an interesting double feature because, you know, on one hand, you have this dark movie, historic movie with basically nothing but men in it. Yeah. Doing man thing, being men. Yep. And then you have this movie with so many women in it and it's women being women and they're on top of them. They're in the center of the story and they're the center of the world and they're the center of everything. Yeah. So it was very kind of interesting to see them both at the, you know, so close to one another. Right. And for that, especially after leave, you know, leaving Oppenheimer, we're like, man, those ladies didn't get nothing. They should have been the Barbie movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They would have gotten more story. (laughs) Anyway, I very much enjoyed the Barbie movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Loved it. Uh, Super fun. And I'll say my relationship with Barbie is limited. (laughs) But not non-existent. I remember as a as very young, I was, I don't know, six years, seven years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. And my older sisters were, were playing with Barbies. Yep. And I was younger and and had my own Ken doll, except his name was George. Oh. I don't know why. Did you named him George? Yeah, I think like I named it. It was no, it, like okay. I named him George. Okay, got it. I was like, this guy's name. Sure. They were like, here's here's a Ken. And I was like, cool, what's his name? Uh, George. <laughs> More and accurate. so... <laughs> When I wanted to play with my sisters, whom I admire and respect very much, uh, they were like, okay, you're the neighbor and we're going to invite you over later. So you sit in your house, which is in your room, and then we'll invite you over later. And cut to little six-year-old Eli (laughs) sitting in my room with with my one little George doll, just waiting. Waiting for that invitation. And maybe, I don't know, in my mind, it was weeks went by. (laughs) It was probably 10 minutes before I was like, I don't think they're going to invite me. (laughs) And getting really upset. Uh, So that's that's my Barbie memory. That makes me sad. That's how it went for me. I was I was more enamored with my uh, thrift store, My Little Ponies. that I had with their neon colors and cool stuff like that. So and of course, I had some like cool ninja turtles so i had a real mishmash of mm-hmm. toys and dolls and action figures and stuff that i played with but yeah but a little bit of barbie and um and i will say i was skeptical from the trailer uh, not because i thought it looked bad or i didn't like the 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 colors or anything like that i was thinking i'm not sure if greta gerwig and noah bomback know comedy skillfully enough to pull off you know the what i feel like is 
looking like it's supposed to be a very funny movie. And th- th- I don't know them to have a big history with comedy. And I'm, I'll say I'm not that familiar with either of them, but just looking at their IMDb and watching the trailer, I was like, I'm nervous that a lot of these jokes are going to fall flat, mm-hmm. despite the very cool world it looks like it takes place in. And I'll say I laughed my ass off that whole movie. Hilarious. It was film. very funny. And I, I was I was wrong mm-hmm. to question that. <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with the performances, sure. I think, too. Because Absolutely. Ryan Gosling was so funny. Like, he really brought a lot to the role. Yeah. I thought Margot Robbie was amazing. Oh, my God. Everyone's talking about Ryan Gosling, and I, they should. Again, he did an amazing yes, job, and he was really, really this. funny. But Margot Robbie brought such a humanity. Yeah. She was so real, and I just loved it. I just thought she did an amazing job. I, I really thought she was incredible. I feel a little badly for her right now. Because and and she she'll be fine. But um, <laughs> but I feel like so many people. It's so much easier to be impressed by what Ryan Gosling was doing because his was big mm-hmm. and comedic, mm-hmm. and like he has all these very stylized performance deliveries and stuff where it's quotable and stand out and noticeable. And what Margot Robbie doing is so much more subtle mm-hmm. and like you said, real and human. And you don't notice that as much. By definition, she's doing a good job because it's not sticking out. Right. And so now I'm like, it's the Barbie movie, which is kind of about this. And everybody's talking about Ryan Gosling. Right. That's upsetting to me <laughs> for on her behalf. Because right. I'm like, you're, she, I think, honestly did a more impressive job at doing something that doesn't stick out at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think. And so America too. Ferrera too, I thought was also yes awesome. Yeah. But I also have a little bit of America Ferrera, and I also kind of have a, a a deep passionate history together. He has a real dog, y'all. He's got a <laughs> lot of girls. I'll say Margot Robbie's in my in my on your list on my list. Uh, I yeah. love Margot Robbie, and I would be jealous of you. Not for you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be like, how dare you? I'd be like, how dare you? <laughs> Why not me? Why not me? <laughs> uh, well, we- <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I just thought, yeah, I thought everybody in it was, did, first of all, everyone in it was having a blast, yes. which is really fun Something. to watch. I mean, it just makes it so much yeah. more fun to watch. Um, I really enjoyed the idea of a, a land, Barbie land, you know, co- you know, completely run by Barbies. Uh-huh. The Kens are not important. They're uh-huh. they're just there, you know, to be Kens. Yeah. And, uh, there was even like some Barbie show uh, on, I don't even know what network, but it was some Barbie show anyway. And they show, they show this little clip of Ken being like, well, Barbie has so many jobs and I just don't have any job. Like, what am I? What do I even do? And he goes, I'm Barbie's boyfriend. That's my job. You know, so it's like very common for Ken to be given this kind of ideal yeah. of like, that's my job. Beach. I do beach yeah. or whatever. <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, and I just I think that's really fun. And it was fun to sort of flip it on its head. Of course, it, that's the point, right, is that they come to the real world right. and they find that women don't run the world. Yeah. And all the men are not himbos. Mm-hmm. Running around trying to make the women happy with them. Right. Uh, it's very much the opposite. And yeah. so then Ken learns about patriarchy, brings it to Barbie land mm-hmm. and changes everything in Barbie land. Yep. And all the Barbies are now 
skimpily clad, right. you know, uh, serving drinks. Yeah. And, and yeah, subservient. And the Kens are all very excited about patriarchy because <sighs> they get to be in charge of things and uh-huh. have their, instead of a dream house, they get to have a mojo dojo casa house right. or whatever. Uh, so then they have to write the Barbie land, right? That's the movie. Yeah. They have to write Barbie land, get it back to Barbie's in charge. Yeah. Um, and we did, you know, we're we're feminists ourselves, and we have a lot of feminist friends that are very deep in the theory, and they have been studying feminism for many, 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 many years, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have some friends that are kind of like, eh, the Barbie movie, not that great, right? Feminist-wise, it's very simplistic, it's like baby's first feminism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it is. There's definitely, if you read any theory, a lot of the things that are said in the film, you've heard a thousand times. Yeah. Like uh, Mar- America Ferrera's big speech, for example, in yeah. the film, I have heard a variation of yeah. since college. Right. Right. So I, I was like, yeah, of, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, so that can be a little off-putting, I guess, if you're, if you're watching it for feminist reasons, I guess, or if you're really yeah, hoping for... Yeah, maybe it's for... disappointing that it's, like, so basic. You were hoping for something more a little deeper, challenging for yourself. Yeah. More profound or yeah. something like that. And I totally understand that, and it's completely valid. I thought it worked, though, because the whole conceit throughout is that Barbie, in Barbie land, they're being played with, right? So, for example, yeah. she doesn't walk down the stairs. She floats. Because yeah. you just take your Barbie and you pick her up and you put her wherever you want her <laughs> yeah. to be when you play with her. <laughs> so they're very much leaning into that People are being played with. This yeah. is a playing. This is a playing situation. Yeah. So it kind of worked for me because it was like it was simplistic and straightforward in the way that oh no, Barbie lands. Barbie's been taken over by the patriarchy. I know. We'll speak truth to power. And then by the time your playtime is over, everything is fixed and yeah. everything is fine. And it yeah. took very little and it wasn't hard. Yeah. That's playtime. Right. So it kind of worked for me on that level. Yeah. And I was like, there's a lot of people who don't read feminist theory since well, college that haven't heard all this shit and it was probably still very revelatory for a lot of watchers so i'm okay if you need a welcome mat to feminism yeah uh, make it hot pink i'm fine with that that's what i'm thinking too about america ferrera's character this is not a woman who necessarily has read a bunch of feminist theory and has heard all these arguments before she's literally discovering and saying that mm-hmm. like it's not that she's discovering it for the first time. She's known it and never had like had someone to express it to. Yes. And now she's in this place. She's like, hang on, let me tell you what I think uh-huh. and lays out something that may sound very foundational to someone, but she's not a scholar. Right. She's a mom with a job. Like she's, she's someone who is just, let me articulate this any way I can so that these brainwashed people can also hear it. Right. And be woken up a little bit. So I think by, by its nature, it should be kind of simple mm-hmm. in its uh, ideology, like yeah. the, like a foundational understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made sense to me. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't. It didn't. I mean, at the time when I was watching it, I was like, "All right, Greta Gerwig, I know you know more than this. This is like Twitter, right? Twitter stuff." Right. But again, then having seen it, still really enjoyed it. I was like, "Fine, whatever." And then I was reading a lot of reactions, and there were a lot of women older than me younger than me, who were like, when they said that, I cried. When America Ferreira had that speech, I cried. It was so amazing to hear, mm-hmm. finally, for the first time, someone say that. And it was like, oh, wow, I never really thought about my life that way. Or I never really, you know, literally, right. it was working in yeah. in in real time for some people yeah. that didn't, don't, don't, aren't familiar with that thinking. Sure. So uh, that was fine with me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was fine with me. <laughs> But I do get the criticism, of course. Oh, for sure. But that was fine with me. Sure. It's not a flawless movie and it's not going to 
fix all the world's problems, but hopefully it will, um, you know, give people something to think about. Yeah. I mean, I'll say I, my, my biggest challenge was probably actually in the real world, the executives. And we talked about this a little bit, the Will Ferrell's character and all them, like mm -hmm. they were so, I think Ryan George said it on pitch meeting and he's like all the Mattel executives <laughs> who want to eat their cake but also have their cake. Yeah. You know, where it was like they were Pointless. in one in, in one aspect, they're the problem, right? Like there's all these men running this company for girls dolls don't know no better and they're reinforcing all these negative stereotypes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're kind of the bad guys. But they're presented as so dopey mm -hmm. and silly and goofy. Well-intentioned. And, and well-intentioned and unrealistic. Yeah. We move from Barbie's fantasy land into the real world and most of the men they meet in the real world are some exaggerated version of, and are not not so much exaggerated of, you know, the worst kind of man you meet on the street, cat callers and ass slappers and, you know, all these right. like kind of gross dudes. And then they show up at Mattel and we're back in a fantasy. Like yeah. these aren't realistic characters anymore. They're Ken's. They're basically Ken's. They're himbos. Yeah. yeah they're they're kind of Ken-like. Yeah. And then they when they go to Barbie land and it it's funny but it feels unnecessary. It feels wedged in. Yeah. And I don't feel like they got the right lesson out of it, or or at least not an effective version of whatever they were trying to do with those guys. I agree. I yeah. felt like the Mattel executives were completely pointless, really. They they really had nothing yeah. to do with anything. I, I think if you took them out, it wouldn't really change the movie it very not. much. It would not. Um, but, you know, also keeping in mind that this is a Mattel production. Exactly. Uh, maybe baby's first feminism and goofy, fun, well-intentioned Mattel execs where we do point out there's not enough women in here. Yeah. It's about as far as they were letting right. her go. You right. know what I mean? Right. So I do, I do keep that in mm -hmm. mind. It's not like it was Greta Gerwig was like, I'm coming after Mattel, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, but they were definitely, I thought pretty, pretty useless. I also felt, uh, I'll, I'll give my, my male perspective here for oh, a minute. Oh, thank God. Finally, someone's, someone's giving it. Um, but no, really, I, I think from my perspective, I, I really enjoyed the what I felt like they were saying with this patriarchy takeover of Barbie land, mm -hmm. where it wasn't exclusively like men are awful and you give them a chance and they'll just all turn into the worst douchebags in the world. Mm -hmm. Theirs was and, and this was, I think, highlighted in the, Barbie and Ken's conversation near the end largely a reaction to how they'd been treated in their world up to that point. Mm -hmm. Like the reason the Kens went so far in the wrong direction was because they had not been allowed to have any agency of their own for so long. Right. Right. So they are, you know, treated as objects for Barbie, totally at the at their mercy. Mm -hmm. And they don't really have their own full identities or anything like that. They're basically just dolls, mm -hmm. these himbos. And so when presented with like, well, you could have power, they go a little overboard with it. They go very overboard with it. <laughs> and I to me, that felt like the lesson in there is not just like. These men that act like this are monsters obviously mm -hmm. and and the cruelty they did towards barbies is unacceptable um but also how we treat each other informs our reactions to that right and so there was something for barbie to learn too mm -hmm. and i think that parallels back into the real world when men get all angry about how reactive feminists are 
or how like, you know, how oh, that that I that ideology is so extreme. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what do you want? How look at the lives these people have had to live for so long. Yeah. Of course, they want to move quickly and rapidly in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And maybe you might feel like that's overshooting. But what do you expect from someone who hasn't had any agency their whole lives? Right. You know? Yeah. And and I like, too, that it was patriarchy was as much of a brainwash for them. Yes. As it was for the Barbies. Yeah. Like they they were fully taken in. Yeah. And Ken's like, as soon as I found out it wasn't about, horses, about horses, I didn't really care. <laughs> I, lost like, interest. I, was, I thought that was so funny. <laughs> like that was so funny. And I, I think that's good because it shows like patriarchy was hurting them, too. Yeah. Even when they were in charge of everything, they were like, I just right. missed my friend Barbie and right. I don't know what to do. And, you know, like they didn't like it, really. Yeah. I mean, you know. They were pretty uncomfortable after a while, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was just not how they wanted to live. They wanted to be with Barbie and have a good time with Barbie. Like that, you know, Uh why do I need her to be over here underneath me in order to be feel like a full Ken? Yeah. I am Knuff. (laughs) I am Knuff. But, you know, I I thought that was that was well done. Or Uh or at least I thought it was a big point. Part of that point, I think, was to show like. This is harming them as much as it's harming the Barbies. Either way, you're caught up in a way of thinking that isn't serving you. Right. Um, you know, stuff like that. Right. So I thought that was that worked. It really uh, did. As well. It worked really well. I had issues with some of the Ruth Handler stuff. Okay. At the end. Okay. So when when Barbie is saying, I'm, you know, yep. not done. Like my story's not and Mattel's like, Well, you're in love with Ken. That's your story. And she's like, Well, I'm not in love with Ken. So yeah. I what's my story, right? <laughs> And so then she meets Ruth Handler and Ruth Handler's like, she says the line, mothers stand still so our daughters can look back and see how far they've come mm-hmm. or something, paraphrasing, something like that. I think that's pretty much it. And I disliked that line. I'm not a mother, so feel free to to write to me and tell me why I'm wrong about this. But I did not like the idea that moms, once they have a kid, stand still and don't do anything or don't achieve anything right? or don't continue to work on themselves or their lives because it's all about their daughter now or something. I, I just didn't really think that sentiment worked for me. It didn't land it, sort of the uh, that idea is why I don't want kids. And why I think a lot of people don't want kids is because of that idea. Um, and I saw a lot of women say they, they loved that line and they thought it was amazing and it brought a tear to their eyes. So maybe I'm, you know, missing something. But Well, I'm sure it depends on your perspective, too. I'm sure a lot of mothers feel like right. I, I, I put some shit down side, yeah. so that, you know, my daughter could get further than I did. And, right. and you know, I, I set my career aside to raise her whatever. I mean, the women have such a more complicated mm-hmm. uh, life to lead as a parent in a lot of ways. Um, in in a lot of the traditional sense, mm-hmm. like, well, I guess my it's default assumption that if someone's career's got to go, it's mine, right? Um, so you know, I, that's where I'm seeing, I guess, where you could find something relatable in that line. But I do think it's such a, I, I agree with you that it's so bluntly stated as a rule, right? That it's it's a little disheartening. Well, and to tie it back to Oppenheimer, is that not why Kitty was the way she was? Yeah. Because she had to stand still for uh-huh. other people and did not get to become a botanist like right. she wanted and not get her PhD. And I know she chose her. She made her choices, too. Right. She said, I'm not going to go after this PhD. She, she did her thing. Sure. I'm not trying to take that away, but that is part of what made her so mad, I, yeah. I think, and feel so, so constrained in her life. Right. Was once you're a wife and mother. That's what you are. Yeah. You don't get to have something else. Yeah. 
so that line kind of frustrated me uh, on on that level. Again, maybe I'm missing something because I'm not a, a parent myself, but I right. I I had a I had trouble with that line. And uh, I also kind of hated the part where she's like, I want to be a real human. And she's like, well, take my hands and you'll see what it's really like to be human. So, you know what it you know what you're getting yourself into here. Yeah. And then they showed nothing but good times. Yeah. They showed a lot of home videos of like happy birthdays right. and like fun Christmases and like people in a field with flowers and like babies. And, right. Like, Lovely imagery about how great it is to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And I remember even thinking in the movie, I wish they were showing the nuclear bomb. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, first of all, it would have been an amazing tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> Crossover alert. <laughs> it's just like Killian Murphy somehow. But um, <laughs> that, it, you know, good times is not the only thing there is to being human. Yeah. And I think it would have made her yes a lot more definitive and powerful yeah. if she had seen a lot of bad shit, too. Yeah. And said, even so, with all that shit, I still want it. Right. I, I mean, think that's... it. I think it would have been more powerful, and so it kind of undercut it to me to only show good things. I was one hundred percent thinking the exact same thing during that montage. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a little too nice for the idea of what it is to be human. It it yeah. sucks sometimes, yeah. and and also that's what makes good things good mm-hmm. is bad things. If everything was just happy all the time, then where's your comparison point? What is happy? It's just normal. Right. Right. So. I, I agree that I think that montage would have been a lot better with some uh, uh, some some shots from Oppenheimer. They, if both movies had <laughs> found a way to from... include <laughs> in their montages elements of the other, yes. truly the greatest we had weekend a kitty, for movies. Like a drunken dream of kitties where she's going, hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. <laughs> hi, Barbie. I'm a botanist. <laughs> and then she wakes up, you know, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I also loved the point where she said all these things about how contradictory it is to be a woman. And yep. now we want we're putting all that on a doll as well because we want Barbie oh, yeah. to be everything. too. Yeah, she has yeah. to be both beautiful, slim and gorgeous so that people want to play with her. But also she has to be every job and smart and have all the capabilities of whatever, whatever. Right. Like we need her to do everything and be everything. So weird. And now everyone's kind of feeling that way about the movie, too. They're sort of like, it's too feminist. It's not feminist enough. Oh, my God. You know, it's give, it's getting all the same, all the exact same contradictions that she talks about in the movie are given to the movie now. And that's very interesting to me to see that kind of being extrapolated in the real world. You know, I've said it before many times, and I'm glad that um, Greta Gerwig and the Barbie cast picked up on what I was saying, which is that it's it's I think it's challenging for women sometimes in this world. It's complicated. Maybe even, you know, I don't know, maybe a little more complicated than men. I'm not sure. I don't want to lock into that. But um, (laughs) but, you know, I'm just glad that other that that women have finally caught up to what to what I thought. Oh, my God. You were going (laughs) to really challenging me today. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I just I think that's really interesting. No, and that's it, not to say that like movies that women do or, you know, people put a lot more on it. Right. I think they are putting a lot on this movie. Yeah. It was offering a lot. So, of course, right. it will you know, people will put their weight of their expectations on right. it. And that's going to make right. a difference. But and people are saying the same about Oppenheimer. They want Oppenheimer to do everything. I wanted it to have more with the women. You know, people were like, why didn't you include the downwinders? There's lots of criticism for that movie, too. Not doing enough or whatever. Right. And so uh, we should probably examine how much we're expecting from our (laughs) entertainment and our (laughs) dolls and shit. I I mean, like, imagine five years ago, someone said Mattel is going to produce a Barbie movie. 
And they didn't tell you who's directing it or anything like that. We all know what trash that movie is going to be. It's going to they're going to get the director of Snow Dogs to come in and do the dopiest, schlockiest. Like Mm -hmm. the jokes are going to be awful. It's going to be. It's going to be the most stereotypical, just like minions, but they're Barbies now. Garbage. Um, What we got is kind of unbelievable. I agree. Uh, I'm sort of shocked that it was just on a surface level as thoughtful as it was. Because it, A, didn't have to be. Uh -uh. And B, probably struggled just to be that. Yeah. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Also, shout out to Michael Sarah. Alan was a really fun <laughs> character. Yeah, Alan. Very much enjoyed Alan. That was a lot of fun. I love you got to beat some ass. Yeah. I'm Ken's friend and we can share clothes. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. That was, that was great. just really Perfect fun. Perfect part for him. Delightful. Yeah. Just really good. Simu Liu was really funny too. Yes. Uh, he was great. And uh, yeah, it's just overall. Oh, and Issa Rae. Issa also, Rae uh, uh, for, we're, for president. We're, we're fans. Um, she was mm-hmm. hilarious. I did love Everybody. Issa Rae. The kid was good the, too. I don't know who the Kate kid was. Kate McKinnon was great. Kate McKinnon's, uh, I mean, all, Kate yeah. McKinnon and Greta Gerwig just found out they were roommates in college. I know. Yeah, yep. I didn't know that. So that, that's, that's Oh, the kid, from. right. America Ferrera's daughter. America Ferrera's daughter. daughter. She was great. We'll also say a little fun Easter egg. The daughter and her three friends are apparently based on the original Bratz dolls. Oh, that's So sort of like the next generation yeah, of RV or, sure. or whatever. So for I thought that sure. was kind of funny. That's and funny. it's true when you look at the four Bratz dolls, they're at least very similar like ethnicities. It's yeah. Like there's one one black Bratz, one blonde, one, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh shit, those really are her four friends. That's cute. Uh, so that was really cute. A lot, lot of little shit like that that's fun to find out about the movie too. Yeah, for it sure. It just makes it more fun. So folks, I want to know I want to know. We've been talking about Oppenheimer. We've been talking about Barbie. And I'm just curious. I want you all to, to email us. I want you to message us. I want you to let us know if you like listening to us talk about movies. <laughs> because we like doing it. Yeah. And I've always been curious if we put that on the air. You know, what kind of interest yeah, we might day. garner from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Glad I'm just know. curious. I mean, we, you know, it's just kind of circumstantial that we went into Oppenheimer and, uh, and Diana dove deep and all this research and now we get to talk about the movie as well so i hope you all enjoyed it yeah i hope so too yeah. and and all this stuff about oppenheimer's ladies oh my god uh i was just and his kids yeah you know they were all all of them a little bit left to the dust of history yeah. so it was, yeah. it was cool to dust them off and kind of see what's going on right right careful that dust don't breathe it in I because that's it's radioactive yeah it's <laughs> Um, thank you so much for sticking with us through this. I think yeah. I think was really fascinated by by everything we've been doing for the last couple hours. Mm-hmm. So thank you for tuning in. Always. Uh, do please reach out. Give us your thoughts. Um, now more than ever, maybe. I just want to know what you <laughs> thought of Oppenheimer, the movie, of mm-hmm. the man, the of man. these women. Nuclear and, nuclear weapons. Well, okay. uh, yeah, sure. Tell us everything you think about disarmament. <laughs> Would you <laughs> have dropped the bomb on Japan? Oh, my God. <sighs> um, but... And then let us know, yeah, if you want to join us for more movie conversations. We'd love yeah. to We'd love to wrap you into that. Uh, so please shoot us an email, ridickromance at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram. I'm at DianamiteBoom. And I'm at Ogorate. It's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in and spending your time with us. And we can't wait to hear from you. We can't wait to give you another episode next time. Yeah, We love you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.